0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and my guest today is Andrew P. Kutnick. Uh, he's a researcher studying the influence of nutrition and metabolism on health, disease, and performance at the University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine. He works with uh, Dominic D'Agostino, a very highly esteemed um, researcher uh, that is researching uh, cancer and ketosis um, and many other... Uh, Aspects surrounding that. Andrew is currently uh, writing his dissertation on cancer and cachexia, which is uh, muscle wasting that occurs uh, due, due to some cancers and in certain stages of certain cancers. Uh, Andrew originally began his research path at Florida State University in the exercise science area, studying the influence, again, of nutrition, exercise, supplementation, and environmental extremes on health-based outcomes in normal and clinical populations. Uh, from Florida State University, he transitioned to biomedical research within the metabolic medicine lab, again, at University of South Florida, Morrisani College of Medicine, uh, with a focus on studying metabolism and metabolic therapies for health disease and performance, and especially for cancer. Uh, Andrew himself is a type 1 diabetic for over 12 years. So he knows a lot about um, living with type 1, about uh, the metabolic effects of type 1, and possibly how to mitigate them. So this conversation I have with him went so long, <laughs> we had to divide it into two podcasts. This intro will serve as the intro for both podcasts. Uh, the first one is on cancer and cachexia, which again is his dissertation thesis. And the other one is about uh, type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, continuous glucose monitors, uh, managing these conditions and more. So uh, Andrew is only 29 years old, but the amount of knowledge that this guy has, Unbelievable. Uh, We probably could have talked for hours and hours more. We uh, talked for two and a half hours and then uh, offline talked for another 30 minutes. So uh, you're getting the top two and a half hours of what we've spoken about. Again, each podcast is uh, a bit over an hour. But uh, this is, um, you know, I I remember Tim Ferriss referred to uh, interviewing Dominic D'Agostino as a master class on cancer and ketosis. I would say this is of the same caliber, a master class On type one diabetes and type two diabetes, and also a a separate master class on cancer and cachexia and uh, metabolic therapies. So listen in, and I'm uh, really glad to have him. All right. And then you mentioned uh, type one diabetes. So if you have a bit of time, would you mind if we transition to discussing that for a bit? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Just for folks that don't know, um, how does it manifest? What is the disease involved? How is it different from type two diabetes?
1: So. So type one diabetes is is a disease that you can describe as an autoimmune disease where it is currently believed and that you have an inappropriate immune response that ends up targeting these specific cells in the pancreas that produce and or secrete insulin. They're called beta cells because the immune response targets them inappropriately. They see them as uh, as as potentially foreign in the body or something that should be uh, uh, targeted, kind of like if you had a bacterial infection or some type of uh, response to a cold or the flu, your body builds an immunity to that, right? Well, same deal with building immunity towards or autoimmunity as well, where the body inappropriately views these cell types as something that should be, I guess, like that the body should produce antibodies against and or attack. And that's called autoimmunity, and it's a a maladaptive response, but that ultimately facilitates the destruction of these unique insulin-producing cells in the pancreas. And essentially, you start seeing this rapid decline in in insulin production that ultimately can drive a patient, particularly with my disease, type 1 diabetes, to have progressive inability to automatically manage glucose levels by pancreatic, I guess, automaticity of the pancreas. So then that forces patients like myself to then inject insulin to make up for the deficiency in beta cell insulin producing or insulin producing beta cells that are no longer available. So in short, it's an autoimmune disease that ultimately uh, results in patients having to manage insulin and glucose uh, kinetics in their own body manually instead of what's done for most people automatically. How is that different from type 2 diabetes? Well, type 2 diabetes is generally described as insulin resistance where you have the ability to produce insulin but the body is resistant to the insulin that is present um so whereas type 2 could be seen as so you have insulin sec- secretion or production that does occur type 1 diabetes is a reduction in insulin um production altogether so um so one is resistance one is one is insulin uh deficiency type 1 diabetes and one is insulin resistance which is type 2 diabetes
0: is there a scenario where you have a type 1b I'm just making up that name where, whereby you have type 2 and uh, you you ask the pancreas to produce so much insulin over so much time that it exhausts itself or your pancreas loses its ability to produce insulin itself.
1: So that is, I, I guess, what is generally believed by the community. And this is type 2 diabetes is not as much my expertise by any means. So I, I'll preface this by saying this is my understanding of what other people who are experts describe it as is that this type 2 diabetes is a um, – I guess, quote-unquote, the stress upon the pancreas over a chronic period of time can actually cause the pancreatic function to slowly reduce. Its it's insulin-producing capabilities and effectiveness reduces over time, and then ultimately the reduced capabilities of not only production and and release, but also the efficacy of that insulin uh, does occur. So as far as I understand from people who are experts in this field, that is what you described is part of the scenario in type 2 diabetes as it becomes more progressive. But again, I'm speaking somewhat out of turn there on my uh my capabilities, but that is my understanding.
0: Okay. So you know, you're in a unique situation, you know, not, not a good one, but you're managing it well, it seems like. So what do type one diabetics do to manage their condition and what are some of the ways that you found that uh made management a lot better? Yeah, for most type one diabetics, unfortunately um the glucose management,
1: I guess, is generally believed in, in the literature based on what we see for outcomes in type 1 diabetics is generally be to be a pipe dream. Like it's just not it's just not seen. Um where the average hemoglobin anyone see across many large population studies, and I and and as a as a as a caveat to most people, anything I'm talking about here actually you can be found on um a three part series I wrote on this, about 80 pages, about 200 or so references. Describing this whole entire scenario, because I thought it was important to kind of dive into this issue in more detail, because I did a talk on this, okay. and I felt like it was important to also complement that with much more detail describing the rationale, so people could look at that information and decide what I have to say, whether they believe it or don't, and, um, you know, look at the evidence for themselves, and, and you know, at least be open-minded to considering that. But I, I literally made a website with just andrewkudnick.com for the exact reason just to put this information good there. That's great. It's
0: okay. a great reference um, for listeners. Yeah.
1: yeah, so check that out if it if it interests you or not. Um, but so a lot of the current strategies for type 1 diabetes management, so I guess I'll back up because I didn't really fully address this. Most type 1 diabetics currently, I would argue the average hemoglobin A1c, if you look at most large population studies where they, they quantify or assess hemoglobin A1c, is around 8. And 8A1c, eight to give you perspective, uh, normal is anything less than 5.6. And then 5.7, uh, or 5.6 or less. 5.7 to 6.4 is prediabetes and 6.5 or above is diabetes. Well, the average hemoglobin C in type 1 diabetics is 8, 8%. And that's an average blood sugar of about 183 milligrams per deciliter. Now it's not a direct conversion, it's an estimation. But that just gives you a yeah, gives you a perspective of normals. I generally believe to be 80 to 120. I know some people believe that. The more you can keep that on the lower end of the 180 or 80 to 120, that the "quote unquote" healthier that may be over the long haul, uh, over someone's life. Um, but that's kind of an open-ended topic, a, a different topic altogether. But mm-hmm. type one diabetics are sitting on average at about 183. Now, the problem with that is that these these hemoglobin A1cs are a reflection of the average blood sugar over a period of time. So. Um, and we also know that fluctuations in blood sugar can also slightly elevate hemoglobin A1c, so it is responsive to the, uh, the flux in glucose. But when you look at the standard deviation in the mean blood glucose in type 1 diabetics, it's unbelievably high, meaning that you could have a high uh, hemoglobin, your average hemoglobin A1c of 183, but the standard deviation would be like somewhere between 60 to 90 milligrams per deciliter. I mean, it just depends on what study you're looking at, but you could see it as high as 100. You could see it as low as 50. But the average is somewhere in that.
0: And you'd have very, very... So that means you'd have very high highs and very low lows, meaning you could have blood sugars of 250 and then other periods where it's 50.
1: I would argue that if you look at how most type 1 diabetics' blood sugars currently look based on the literature, that most type 1 diabetics are flying all over the place with their blood sugar. Um, That is what the literature shows. Um, I can also tell you as a type 1 diabetic, that's not hard to accomplish either. It's, It's... if you do things the the i guess the traditional way that's not uncommon that's actually somewhat expected uh for now it's somewhat it is expected for a type 1 diabetic to be dealing with that um i argue that that doesn't have to be that way but that is currently the standard for most type 1 diabetics um the current approaches the current treatment strategies for most type 1 diabetics are are things like carbohydrate counting, basal bolus protocols, intensive treated therapy, insulin pumps, continuous glucose monitors, closed-loop systems. Man, there's other emergent things like islet cell transplants, these vaccines that people are interested in, stem cells. All these things are are some of the current things that are either being investigated or being done. But the most common things currently done are carbohydrate counting. It's this idea that you eat like 15 grams of carbs and that's one unit of insulin. So a a carb to uh, IU Unit or carbs to units of insulin ratio that you utilize. And then basal bolus is just this concept of you give a, you have multiple types of insulin. So most people don't maybe even appreciate this, but type 1 diabetics have to, that you actually have a subtle release of glucose that occurs throughout the day. Um, and as a consequence, type 1 diabetics have to take something called a basal insulin, an insulin to cover, cover the basal excretion of insulin or glucose that occurs throughout the day. Now bolus, so this, when I say basal bolus protocol, I talk about the basal portion of it. Those are things like called like Levomir or Lantus or these longer-acting insulins that are more stable but cause longer release of insulin over a chronic period of time.
0: Somewhere upwards of 24 hours in some of these insulin types. Oh, so if you only- don't address the basal amount, your glucose will what, drift up during the day from the time you wake until a point where it's. Uh, then if you eat a meal on top of it, it could really skyrocket. Is that the problem?
1: Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, actually, yes, yeah, so there's, there's really – you have to cover basal as a type 1 diabetic. Or at least, you know, I'm not a clinician. I'm not telling anyone what to do with their, their medical management, so I'll get that out there up front. But most medical professionals would argue that that is just not even a question mark. You have to cover the basal or you're going to be chasing chronic elevations of glucose that happen all day long because that's what occurs. Um, Most people are gifted with a functional pancreas. Well, I guess maybe not most people because we have this epidemic of type 2 diabetes that's occurring, but most people have at least a pancreas and at least beta cells present. And because most people have at least that, they have some automaticity to the basal glucose efflux that is going into the bloodstream that is causing elevations in blood sugar. But for a type 1 diabetic, because ultimately the in, in response is a very microscopic or absolutely depleted beta cell function, you have to cover that with basal level insulin, um, and so that's what's currently used or currently used for most people. Or if they have a, as a side note, a pump which constantly infuses insulin, these are different ways to cover that basal response. But the basal bolus is the bol bolus part of that is every time, as you mentioned, you have a meal, you would cover that with insulin. Now. Traditionally, you would, you know, basically kinetics of how some of these uh, insulins should work and the carbohydrates for certain foods. So I, if I were to st- take a step back, so to kind of wrap that up in summary, you would bolus for the meals and you would take a basal for the glucose deflux that occurs over a 24-hour period. So if you didn't take insulin, you would, uh, the basal insulin, you would basically slowly go up all day. And if you didn't bolus for meals, you, of course, would have this really robust and quick elevation in blood sugar as a consequence of the meal. Um, of course, if you don't do either, you've got a real problem. And that's actually what happens when patients actually end up in the hospital because they feel sick, lethargic, dehydrated, or throwing up. They're in ketoacidosis because they're insulin deficient. Their glucose is usually over 250 milligrams per deciliter. And their ketone levels, as a consequence of having no ability to shuttle nutrients out of the bloodstream into these cells that need nutrients, vastly upregulate ketogenesis to provide supplementary fuel. But in the absence of mm-hmm. insulin... You cannot mitigate that gluconeogenic response. So you have this this full-out attempt from the body to try and save the patient's energetic deficiency, but in doing so, there's no way to shut it off. And as a consequence, ketoacidosis results in super high glucose, super high ketones, and almost a replete or absence
0: of insulin altogether. Um, So so the common wisdom right now is... Eat what you want, but uh keep this uh ballpark value of fifteen grams of carbs to one unit of insulin and make sure you have enough insulin to counteract whatever you're eating, supposedly.
1: Correct. And that would be a, that makes total sense though, right? So you you have this rapid acting insulin. So we have all types of insulin now. We have long acting insulin, we have medium acting insulins, we have regular insulins, we have rapid, we have all types of insulins now. So you think okay, we have basal insulin what's coupled with the basal gluconeogenic or just the basal glucose E-flux. And then you also have these meals, so let's just use a rapid-acting insulin for these meals. That's the current paradigm. Most people do that. That's commonly recommended. Um, however, if that actually worked, you would think that the blood sugars would be better, right? You have normal, effective control of blood sugar levels across patients if those strategies were effective. But if you look at the literature, because basal bolus protocols and insulins for rapid and basal have been around for forever. So if those were effective, then you would think that these insulins would cover that well they're not i mean they're they're not effectively doing that so then the next question would be what what a patient just may not be actually effectively bolusing for the meal well that might be possible but it's unlikely that a patient who has type 1 diabetes some you know some are more uh, flippant than others some are super vigilant even the most vigilant of patients i would argue have far from perfect control because I'm also speaking anecdotally here, but we know this across a number of just how the, the pharmacokinetics of these molecules work. If you have a carbohydrate based meal, let's say right now, uh, Andrew goes and goes to, you know, uh subway down, down the street. And he goes into a sub, a six, you know, a six inch sub. I don't even know how many carbohydrates do. Let's just say like somewhere between 50 and a hundred, depending on what I you know is put on it. And I say, let's say, okay, Andrew, I, I need my carb to insulin ratio is one unit of insulin for every fifteen grams of carbohydrates. Let's say that it's sixty grams of carbohydrate. I need four I use of insulin. Okay, I'm gonna take my rapid acting insulin before I eat, let's say five to ten minutes, or right when I eat, but let's say I did it five five to ten minutes before because supposedly the time of onset from the injection is about five to ten minutes prior to the meal. Mm. Then you eat your meal, and of course you just wait and, and expect your blood sugar to stay stable. Well, it doesn't. And The reason it doesn't is because when you inject insulin, okay, it depends on where you inject it, but you have to wait for the injection to actually be absorbed into the bloodstream first. So when you inject into the adipose tissue, it takes time for that insulin to make it into the bloodstream. But when it makes it into the bloodstream, then it's able to be distributed to the peripheral tissues. Insulin's glucose-lowering effect is mostly as a consequence of skeletal muscle and adipose tissue uptake of insulin meaning when I say uptake, I mean binding to the insulin receptor, causing these receptors called Gluc-4 receptors to go to the surface and shuttle glucose into the cell to be stored and or, or, or used for energy. Now, that's the normal response. Uh, but you, you do not see... So that's why you have this glucose-lowering effect, and that's why it's so important for the glucose to get from the injection site to circulation. But that takes time. It's not instantaneous. It's not rapid. It takes a period of time. Whereas a normal healthy individual with a functional pancreas will actually see almost instantaneous glucose release. The reason being is because when we inject this type 1 diabetics or use a pump that goes through a cannula into the, the fat tissue, there's an absorption rate before it gets to circulation. Whereas a patient who has a functional pancreas, their beta cells actually have stored granulas that will actually release into circuit circulation almost instantaneously. So you actually see this really rapid response to the glucose elevating effect uh, food um, in normal healthy patients—that's usually appropriate and sufficient to manage the blood sugar response. Okay. However, for a type 1 diabetic, so that, that could be within minutes. So let's say I ate, you know, these smarties candies that I use to elevate my blood sugar when I get um, when I go hypoglycemic. Because even through some of the best management strategies, you know, you're you're not completely removing that risk. You're just potentially making management better. Whereas a normal healthy patient, the second the blood glucose rises, the beta cells that type 1 diabetes no longer uh, on average have functionally for the most part. um, They don't have the appropriate response, or you don't have that response at all, so you have to inject insulin to manage the glucose elevation. And that's the big discrepancy right there, is that while a normal response to glucose elevation is instantaneously from the beta cells, releasing insulin and pre-packaged granulus directly in the bloodstream, a type 1 diabetic has to inject it, wait for it to be absorbed, and the difference between absorption of granulas that goes directly into the bloodstream, which is instantaneous, versus the injection is changing the kinetics of that insulin for hours. So if you would inject the most rapid of insulin, let's say I have insulin in front of me right now, I have something called homolog. If I were to inject that into my adipose tissue right now, the general prescribed theory is that that's going to take about 5 to 15 minutes to start hitting my circulation. But then mm. it will stay It'll peak that maximal insulin response will be at about an hour, and most of the effect will be gone within two hours. However, it's still in my circulation or still being absorbed in circulation over two hours. It doesn't take two hours for the glucose to be released from a Subway meal or even any meal for the most part, unless you just totally gorge yourself and it takes hours to be absorbed. For the most part, most of these meals are going to be absorbed. At least the glucose of these meals are going to be absorbed rather quickly. I mean, I can tell you as a Type 1 diabetic, if I don't bolus at all and where I go eat something like that, most of the glucose elevating effect will be present within the first 30 minutes. So you have insulin that lasts for two hours, peaks at one hour, but then you have most of the carbohydrate-based meals, even if you were to try and use low glycemic options, take a very long time to actually, or take a rather rapid in elevating blood sugar, whereas the insulin takes hours to actually effectively do its job. So either you have, if you really want to truly control your your glucose response to this, it's extremely difficult to do that with carbohydrate based meals, only because the rapid acting insulin almost never will be able to match the rapid nature of how fast the glucose elevation is as a consequence of the meal compared to how slow, comparatively, the insulin is at actually lowering the blood sugar That's in correct. the
0: circulation. What about uh, insulin pumps? Are they? Do they have like process controllers that you know continually observe the uh, the glucose level in a person and you know dish out insulin or you know how do they work?
1: So that's, those are things called closed loop systems where you have a continuous glucose monitor that sits in your interstitial fluid, and then these. And I have to describe this first. So a pump is something where you inject a small little cannula that slowly releases insulin into the adipose tissue over the day, or if you 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 say okay, I have let's say point five or 0.25 I use per hour of insulin injected, um, every hour. And it slowly gives that every, let's say five or 10 or 15, 20 minutes, whatever it might be. And then say, I go eat, it, someone goes to eat Subway and they tell their pump to go get, you know, let's say four units. As I told you, if it was 15 to one, and it was 60 carbs. Um, so that's a pump. So it basically just allows you to insert a cannula into adipose tissue and continuously release glucose into the adipose tissue cannula insertion spot. Um, then a, the other aspect of these loop systems that you're referring to is a continuous blood glucose monitor. Well, a continuous blood glucose monitor sits in the interstitial fluid. So you inject this cannula uh, into your interstitial fluid. You then leave the cannula in. That cannula then attaches to a transmitter, which attaches to something like these devices called like Dexcom or Medtronic. Um, there's a free, Freestyle Libre. There's all sorts of continuous blood glucose monitors on the market right now. But how these continuous blood glucose monitors work is they enter the cannula. Those cannulas are coated with an enzyme. That enzyme is called glucose oxidase. Um, when glucose is in uh, when glucose is elevated in circulation, it will then diffuse into the interstitial fluid. Um, as higher gradients of insulin are present in the circulation, it takes some time, but because there's a delay in what you actually see in the continuous blood glucose monitor right. for this reason. Because What's in the circulation takes some time to actually transmit or, or translate to the interstitial fluid. So, but when it, uh, when you have enough glucose in the circulation elevating, let's say that you're a type one diabetic and you ate that subway meal and your blood sugar goes up to, you know, let's say you had it controlled at a hundred and you ate that meal and you didn't get any insulin at all. Well, you'll probably go up to 250 to 300. Um, that'd be my guess for most people. If you're a small child, it'd be much higher than that. But uh, for the most people, you're going up at least 100 milligrams per so for most people um, in most scenarios uh, in a controlled situation. When that blood sugar elevates in the serum because the body would digest that food in the stomach, then the metabolites from that food, you know, protein, or sugar, glu- uh, carbohydrate molecules, this turns into glucose ultimately, and protein to amino acids and fat to lipid molecules, these all go, you know, through hepatic circulation, then hit hit your circulation or go through then get filtered or or processed by the liver and then that of course ultimately ends up in circulation. Now those that ultimate end product in circulation, you know, let's say you ate that blood sugar elevates, that elevated blood sugar will slowly cause insulin to be absorbed into the interstitial fluid as it elevates in the serum. So it's kinda of like this gradient thing where um if you add more water or let's say you add more molecules to the main, um, I guess it's kind of hard to describe other than saying if you had these three canisters, um, well, let's say that had this big, uh, a visual for people, if you had a, a tub or a fish tank, right. And in the center fish tank is the main fluid and you have these filters that break the fish tank up into three compartments. So you have, they're like little filters that are these really, really small holes that allow for whatever you put in the main compartment to then slowly through a diffusion gradient to go to these side compartments. So you put these filters right. uh, from the main compartment to the side compartment of the fish tank. Well, let's say you dump a bunch of glucose into the main compartment. Well, it will take some time for the diffusion of that glucose. Although in a fish tank example, it happened pretty quickly, but in the what well, glucose to interstitial fluid scenario, it takes time for that glucose as elevated in the main compartment to slowly Diffuse into these side compartments, and one of the side compartments. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, then one of the side compartments is the interstitial fluid, and these ca- these these cannulas that have these glucose oxidase enzymes will pick up these elevations in the interstitial fluid. So it's it's a little it's downstream of glucose elevation in the blood, and the the reaction of glucose oxidase with glucose produces something called d-glucono one five lactone. But it also, as a byproduct of that, produces hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide actually creates a signal uh, that can be detected based on the sensor that's inserted. Hmm. That sensor is then transmitted to a receiver that you're able to get a signal, okay? So more glucose, more signal. Less glucose, less signal. You then use your blood glucose meter to then say, my blood sugar right now is 200 because I just had a Subway meal. And I'm getting this in your receiver because I put in 200 into my receiver, which receives the signal from the transmitter, um, then that will tell the receiver what the ratio of signal to glucose level actually is or an estimation of the ratio between the two. And you have a continuous blood glucose monitor that will then tell you what your estimated blood sugar is over a chronic period of time. And you give it continuous
0: Mm -hmm. updates so it it can stay uh, as precise as possible. Now go go ahead. Oh, so um, have you worn a CGM? Yeah, I'm actually wearing one
1: right now. I wear a nice. Dexcom. I I used to wear a Medtronic and uh, switched over to Dexcom. I found it to be at least at that time more effective. But I I I will say that these things have become way more accurate than they ever used to be um, over a period of time. I find them to be very very good at least getting delayed trends in blood sugar elevation. Um, or I guess they're, they're best seen as blood sugar trend indicators. Um, they're not necessarily exact because you obviously have to make a couple of assumptions to assume that whatever's happening in the blood automatically happens in the interstitial fluid, like that there is automatic diffusion of that glucose in the blood into these interstitial compartments. That's, that's one assumption, uh, which is generally true, but maybe not always, uh, happening ubiquitously just like that. um, and you also have to assume that the ratio you're getting from the two are equivalent. And you also have to assume that the enzyme is able to sufficiently cause a linear response to the amount of glucose to hydrogen peroxide produced. I mean, you have all these things that are assuming with these, these CGMs, but um, they've gotten pretty good at getting them accurate. At least I can speak from a an anecdotal um, person who has to use these to try and manage
0: their blood sugar levels on a regular basis. Well, just so you know that, that that I'm here with you is I'm wearing one, too, a Dexcom amazing. G6. So. <laughs> but well, um, I'm actually
1: in the process of uh, trying to get a G6. I have a G5 right now, which I definitely love. It has been amazing upgrade from what I was using previously. So I actually have to get, you know, put the old insurance deal to, to get one, but
0: I'm hoping to get one of those soon. Okay. Well, if, if you don't mind, can I ask you some questions about the, you know, I know that you're different than me. I'm not type one, but um, I'm seeing some strange trends in it. So I wanted to ask if you have any insight into it. Um, you know, for instance, uh, during sleep, I'll see that the, uh, the glucose will, will fluctuate. So I wonder if, um, if there's any literature on glucose levels and stages of sleep.
1: So, yeah, so there's, there's actually, and I think this is, this is where I got to get into the whole, uh, personal, um, thing about type one diabetes and how insightful it can be. I, I, As a type 1 diabetic, you really learn a lot personally about your metabolism um, and how dynamic it truly is and what goes into actually changing it on a moment-by-moment basis uh, over time. Most of what people think about metabolism is over the long haul: Are you overweight? Are you skinny? Are you exercising or not exercising? Whereas type 1 diabetics can truly appreciate just how much in a day changes glucose flux and/or insulin sensitivity to ultimately manifest in differences in insulin that you give or glucose uh insulin boluses you have to give throughout the day. Now, you had mentioned about oddities that might occur with sleep. Well, we do know while you're sleeping, at least in the periods of sleep, that there is typically a elevation in growth hormone in the sleep scenario. So that this is, I guess, typically associated with uh, And growth hormones typically seen as antagonistic to insulin in, and, and I guess, some mechanistic ways. But growth hormone typically elevates. Well, there's some evidence to indicate that growth hormone could actually induce some level of normal insulin resistance that occurs. And that could, of course, elevate glucose during the sleep period. This is also in part why people um, discuss something called the DOM phenomenon, which is this, this known phenomenon that happens in some individuals, although many people argue most individuals with type 1 diabetes. To experience an elevation in blood sugar upon rising. And part of that is in the later stages of sleep, there's this elevation in GH that would be antagonistic to the insulin response. But then upon waking, you have uh, a, cortico- a cortisol response that occurs that can, of course, cause something called glycogenolysis or the breakdown of, of glycogen stores because it, it's, you know, they stress hormone. Um, and then you also might have an adrenal response to waking up. So there's a whole host of reasons um, that you might actually see a progressive. Um, a reduction in insulin's effectiveness, but also increase in, in glucose efflux into the circulation. Um, that happens progressively
0: from, let's say, middle of the night to upon waking. Yeah, that's what I see is I'll, I'll see my glucose to be at one level and right near the end of my sleep, it starts to rise. And then, it, you know, once I wake up, it rises a little bit more and then it stabilizes.
1: Yes. And there's there's I mean, there's a lot of literature to to describe why people currently believe that's happening. A lot of that is the GH response that they believe is causing an antagonistic response to insulin during those periods of time where GH is, is elevated. But also upon rising, you do have these these cortisol responses upon rising, part of the, the wake period. But also some people believe there's an adrenal response as well to just the, the wake period. Um, and what you're describing is kind of – so you, you said you do or don't have insulin resistance.
0: Oh, I do. Yeah. I've, you know, I've been overweight for many years and I've been, you know, uh, improving my diet. So it's been getting better. I've had my insulin levels tested, but, uh, definitely still have it. So in your scenario, the reason I even
1: asked that is because in your scenario, it would probably be more observable than let's say, I'd say I, I walk outside here and find a, you know, 20 something med student who's exercising every single day and is normal weight. They may never see this. If they were a CGM, whereas someone like yourself, um, who, may be able to see some of these changes in in blood sugar that are more impactful on your body um, or someone like myself with type 1 diabetes where just having a stable level of insulin, if there's a glucose efflux that occur, if I don't add insulin into that, well, of course, I'm going to be seeing the byproduct of physiology taking place. Normal physiological responses that these these diurnal variations in blood sugar, efflux into the serum, but also insulin sensitivity, there's a normal part of every day I mean, a lot of what's taken for granted that a type 1 diabetic will have no choice but to have to deal with is, you know, like illness. If you get sick, you can have these glucose elevations and or insulin resistance. The exercise increases insulin sensitivity. I think most people read about that and hear about the good effects of exercise, but the glucose sensitivity or the elevation of glucose effectiveness during exercise, then also there's something called contraction-induced glucose translocation or exercise-induced Glucose translocation, and there's a whole host of things that happen with exercise that changes sensitivity. Sleep, sleep quality. Let's say if I had to do, I had to do a couple of red eyes over the last six months, and those just totally destroy my normal insulin or glucose control because there's it's a stre- it's a total stressor. I can't sleep on planes that save my life. Me so too, yeah. I. Yeah, so I get a total. I don't get the normal sleep, so I don't get that normal response that occurs. And then I have this you know, I, I can feel this like underlying um uh discomfort and I'm assuming probably an elevation in things like cortisol, though I'm making an assumption when I say that, um, that are probably driving, you know, elevation in glucose into the serum. But things like caffeine, stress, hormonal fluctuations, just the, the time of day can change insulin sensitivity and or glucose deflux. Um that all go into managing on an everyday basis, and I guess I would argue that that's most salient in the type one diabetic.
0: well, I could tell you some things I've noticed, so you know like uh last night i I went to the movies and I just you know my weakness is popcorn, so I had some popcorn and I went from like i don't know eighty five to like hundred and fifteen right. uh, and then i I went for a walk because I don't like it up there even though it's not that high but and then, you know, I did some exercise, went for a walk, etc. And I got it down, uh, I don't know, it's like 80. And then I stopped and then it, it went down to, I don't know, about 70. And then it rebounded back up to, you know, to 90. But I've seen, for instance, that exercise pretty quickly can can lower your glucose level. I'm not sure what's happening, you know, in the background with the insulin levels now that the insulin's been released and all that. But, you know, that's one thing I've noticed, for instance.
1: Yeah, there's a there's an interesting study describing some of the changes that, are, are, are revolving around GLUT4, um, insulin-induced effects of, on GLUT4 surrounding exercise, such as, you know, your heart rate elevates, you know, uh, so the heart rate elevation means higher circulation or more circulation on these insulin molecules that can then have a better propensity to potentially bind to receptors. You also have um, insulin-independent glut upregulation that can occur absent of insulin, um, meaning that you can have glucose translocation and then glucose uptake um, that can occur because of exercise. And some people believe that's because of contraction induced effects um, in skeletal muscle. So there's definitely some some reasons why there are good, you know, there, there are changes in the effectiveness of insulin um, that occur with exercise,
0: uh, certainly. I mean, it, it, that's a very explored topic in the literature for sure. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if this will be advice, but you know. If- one's experiencing high blood sugar, maybe something they could do to mitigate it very quickly, you know, in addition to insulin, if they have it, but it's to, again, exercise or go for a walk to bring it down quicker than just letting it sit there at a high level.
1: And I would, I would say, you know, and that might be the case in a type two diabetic scenario. Um, I know some type one diabetics who might use that for mitigating um, blood sugar elevation, but it, it, I would almost go to say that that you're, there are so many variables in a type one diabetics life that influence insensitivity. So let's say I, I'm on your same exact shoes. Let's say we both went to the movies together. You paid of course, uh, because I'm a grad. Student <laughs> and so you buy me popcorn. I eat the same amount of popcorn for you as you. And let's say that I'm like, okay, you know what? I think I need, let's say I ate what most people eat when I go to, pop, uh, the, you know, to the movies, a, a whole bag. So let's say I don't even know how many carbs that would be. It's been so long since I calculated those things. Um, yeah. But uh, it's you know let's just say a hundred to 150 carbs, and sure. let's say let's just go 125. So at 125, let's say I do that one to 15 ratio. Um, I'll, well, let's just say 150 because that would be so much easier to do math wise. So That's yeah. ten okay. units of insulin. Um, I take 10 units of insulin and I go to 300, and then I start seeing myself slowly come down. But let's say you're like, hey Andrew. My blood sugar went up to like a hundred. It's up to 124. You said
0: like 115 or so. Yeah.
1: Okay, 115. So let's say you're like, and you know, hey Andrew, my blood sugar is going up to 115. I need to go outside and walk. You want to me? I'm Like, okay, sure. Um, you know, I don't want to be a, an a hole and say, you know, you know, you go walk on your own. So I go walking with you, right? And then my heart rate goes up. My absorption of the insulin from the spot of injection now increases, and now my sh- blood sugar starts pummeling dramatically meaning that whatever I gave at the period that I thought would be appropriate while I was rested, now I'm exercising, the potency of that insulin and the timing and the kinetics are expedited.
0: Mm. So
1: now I'm dealing with a whole new slew of confounding factors. What time of day is it? How much insulin did I already inject? How far out of the injection time am I? How much insulin do I think is actually left to be inducing a glucose uh, reduction effect? And how long are we going to be walking? Because if I went outside and walked for 10 to 15 minutes, no big deal. But let's say we pick the pace up and walk for 30 minutes to an hour. Well, that's totally going to transform the absorption and or insulin sensitivity effect. So now I'm dealing with like a whole host of dynamic factors to try and estimate what the effect will be. So in a type 2 diabetes scenario, that makes sense because you're just trying to make your body better at what it's doing. Whereas in the type 1 diabetes scenario, I'm dealing with the time of day. I'm dealing with the exercise. I'm dealing with the food. How far after the meal was it? Did I already absorb or uh, digest all that food? How far out of the insulin injection? Where did I inject that insulin? Will it be faster or slower? How much faster would it be? How long will the exercise be that will then cause the glucose elevating effect to then be more or less potent? There is – so in the type 1 diabetic scenario, there's so much – to account for that goes on on a regular basis. And it's often totally, I would argue, uh, I advocating for the type one diabetes community totally underappreciated what they they may go through on a regular basis. You know, a lot of type one diabetics in order to manage their scenario are really attempting to normalize their life into as consistent of a, a scenario as possible, at least the ones that I know. Because those who don't have a consistent life, and I can tell you, I am one who does not have consistent life, it is so much harder to regulate your response to insulin because it changes throughout the day. And we know that these changes are occurring due to known physiological responses. It's not like, hey, you know, someone sprinkled fairy dust onto me and my insulin sensitivity changes. Like, there is no literature on why throughout the day there's diurnal variations in insulin uh, sensitivity hmm. and glucose efflux. I mean, we know that these things happen throughout the day. It's just a type 1 diabetic has to then manage it all day. So it's a very Oftentimes, difficult thing to truly manage, and unfortunately, because to kind of circle back around to what we were talking about originally, the A one C's the most type one diabetics are are really sky high. I mean, eight percent is the average. That means you have people above that, and of course, below that. Wow. And it fluctuations all over the place. You know, like I told you, you could have a hundred eighty-three milligram per deciliter average, but you could have a standard deviations you know, anywhere between fifty to one hundred. And so, so you wh-
0: can understand. Wh- let's see. The- all right? So. I can see how difficult it is to try to manage this condition. You know it's so sophisticated and so incredibly difficult that you know especially on a uh, a standard diet or a high carb diet i mean it seems almost it's almost impossible is what it sounds like
1: it is well if you're trying to well it depends what you mean by effectively managing it, and everyone's definition of that is definitely different what i what I define as effectively managing it is getting your blood sugar between eighty and one hundred and twenty for most of the day. So that is what I would argue is effectively managing it. Um, most people who are treating someone with type one diabetes or most type one diabetics, that's not how they define normal. Um, you have to redefine normal, kind of like you know politicians may redefine what is like you know the tax brackets or whatever. You know, ironically, yeah. but you know I I'm, I don't really pay too much attention to politics, but nonetheless, it's it, it's kind of like that. You just redefine what is normal. But if I were to define what is normal of 80 to 120. Most individuals are eating a high carbohydrate based diet and most people are failing to manage their blood sugar levels. Is there an association between that? I, I, you know, there's an argument. Someone may say, well, no, that's because of a whole host of other factors. Well, I would argue that's probably one of the largest contributors to the problem. You know, if you have a, you know, if you have type one diabetes and the main problem you have is to regulate blood sugar levels. And this is my personal opinion, you know, take it for, for what it is and look into it for yourself and make your own opinions, whoever may be listening to this. So don't, right. don't just take, you know, my opinion as, oh, there, Andrew said that, I, that's it. You know, no, look into this for yourself, see what other people have to say, and then come to your own conclusion on this. Don't need to be sold on any one thing I have to say. Double check everything I have to say on this topic. I encourage everyone to do that. But if you have a disease of type 1 diabetes and you eat a mixed meal, let's say we go back to that subway example or the popcorn example, that is going to cause elevation in blood sugar. You know, all the carbohydrates, minus some carbohydrate forms such as fiber or let's say non digestible forms of, you know, artificial sweeteners or stuff like that. But uh, for the most part, most carbohydrates, doesn't matter if they're slow digesting or fast digesting, end up as glucose in the circulation. So that means that a type 1 diabetic has to then manage that with insulin. Unfortunately, managing that blood sugar elevation with carbohydrates. With insulin, it almost never pharmacokinetically matches the glucose kinetics of the food they just ate, meaning that you're almost always going to be on a up and down scenario where if I took, let's say that 10, uh, 15 units was the exact dose I needed if I sat in the movies and, and took the uh, 15 units right before I ate, right. and that's exactly how much I needed. Well, do I inject that before I eat because the elevation will peak at one hour? Or do I take it right when I eat so that I'll have the elevation, but it will slowly be brought down over the two-hour period? Well, it never will match. So you have to do what you can to, I guess, mitigate that. But nonetheless, the 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 absorption rate of its effect lasting, for the most part, over a two-hour period, and those carbohydrates getting in, usually mostly within the first 30 minutes, those don't match. I mean, th- those don't match at all. So it's not surprising that if you're putting more glucose in the system based on any type of meal, that it'll be... A, exceedingly more difficult to manage that with any form of insulin that's currently available on the market. So how do you deal with that? Well, you can look at the literature and see the average blood sugar response and see how most people are dealing with it. They're just doing the best they can to manage it right now based on what is the current lifestyle of most people. However, probably the reason I'm even speaking to you today is because there are other ways to do that. And actually part of why I'm even in this, phd scenarios because of getting diagnosed well it's a whole host of things i i was an overweight individual who lost a bunch of weight and was very empowered by that i met i love exercise i've seen everything that is done to my yeah i used to be upwards of like 250 pounds and mostly fat to dropping down to a buck 70 and then i got type 1 diabetes and then i i now am about 220 and been around 240 250 somewhere around there and i love exercise i love what it can do to transform Someone physically and mentally, but then I also with type one diabetes diagnosis grew to saliently appreciate what nutrition can do for an individual or can adversely do for an individual. It's no i guess i would argue no more uh, pertinent example of that than type one diabetes. so if you're putting carbohydrates into the system and you have something nothing to really manage that effectively based on kinetics it's really hard to not deal with constant fluxes in glucose and the results in the literature of type 1 diabetics reflect that that's that's what we see in the literature it's not like i'm saying hey you know this is
0: why thing is happening it's like no this is what the data says and well, what's the uh, what's the consequences of having you know wildly fluctuating blood sugar levels essentially what's the consequences of being a a typical type 1 diabetic what happens to these people
1: so I, I usually describe that in two scenarios, the acute and the chronic. So the acute effects are, let's say that your average is 180. Well, you're hyperglycemic, right? So you're already above 120. You're hyperglycemic. There's a whole host of symptoms. You can glu- uh, Google hyperglycemia. There's a whole host of symptoms that accompany hyperglycemia. So most people are sitting in hyperglycemia all the time. So you are you have the symptoms of hyperglycemia all the time. And then you're trying to do what you can to mitigate these flux these elevations in blood sugar or just because of food, or maybe it's just because it's high and you injected insulin to bring it down. Then you have to deal with the flux of insulin. I can tell you the rapid decrease in insulin is something that definitely causes a unique physiological response. This is very uh, anxiolytic, or not anxiolytic, um, anxious. anxious It's very anxious, uh, anxiety-provoking, because it's it's this really rapid reduction in glucose that has this very, uh, pertinent feeling associated with it. It's not so pleasant. Um, and let's say you go hypoglycemic. Well, on the short end of things, the symptoms of hyper hypoglycemia are reduced cognition because, of course, you don't have as much glucose circulating to be able to have a functional brain. Um, but then you also have the the consequences of reduced capability. You have shaking. You have irritability. All these things that would typically accompany someone who may only have experienced this if they haven't eaten all day and they don't normally fast. So they might get minor hyperglycemia if they don't eat all day and they're used to eating six meals a day or four meals a day. And they may feel that, hey, I can eat like a horse, I'm so hungry, my brain is foggy, I'm irritable. That is minor hyperglycemia. A type 1 diabetic may experience twice the, the severity of a hyperglycemic moment instant like within minutes compared to someone experiencing that only after oh, fasting wow. for an entire day. <laughs> yeah, I can inject insulin right now. And I, could, I If I wanted to, I am sitting in front of a fatal dose of insulin right now. I could inject two months insulin right now that would kill me. I mean, that's just that's just reality. And you can look up in the news every year of a type 1 diabetic who, because of mismanagement, unfortunately, that's what happened. And it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible that this is a fear. And this is most commonly described in parents of children with type 1 diabetes because you're somewhat unable to truly – You you are – you're battling two things. One, your desire to manage your kid's blood sugar level because you know that you need to do that because you've been told it's not good to have high blood sugar or blood sugar mismanagement. And you have a child who probably doesn't want to be injected all day, be different than their peers, but they have a disease that is inevitably forcing them to be different than their peers. So you're a parent who's then trying to handle a child who has this unique but also very difficult disease to manage because it's all over the place in the blood sugar, I've talked to a lot of parents who have type 1 diabetes, and it's not – it it is certainly a very, very difficult thing for them to manage. Very, very difficult for them to manage because there's so many factors that go into that. What if they go to school?
0: Or they go to a friend's party or something, or they're in a social situation where they feel pressured.
1: Of course. Like, oh, okay. Yes, of course. And let's say you don't want – you're that kid who's like, I don't want to pull out a syringe – you know, imagine the stigma associated with that. I can tell you the stigma associated with that. I've been in the gym multiple times uh, pulling out a syringe and injecting it into my shoulder um, for a meal after I worked out. And this little kid walks by and sees me in a syringe on my shoulder. And let me tell you, his face said everything you needed to, to see. You know, it, it, mm. it, there's, so, there's so much stigma associated with needles and other things like that. So imagine a kid. This is what's nice about a pump for some kids is that it removes some of that social uh, social issues that some may have—they um, they probably think you're doing steroids in the gym too. Sometimes, of course. I mean, I, I well, what would I guess what would most people think if someone was injecting uh, in the gym uh, a needle? So there's there's issues and barriers for for children to, to deal with, and a caregiver who most of the burden's now on their shoulders to do this, knowing and they're t- building the responsibility on themselves is extremely difficult. And you know, and, and these parents only want the best for their kids. These caregivers only want the best for who they're helping. Um, I would say almost all of them, that's a scenario. So it's very, very difficult for them to deal with these situations, especially in children, um, where it's saliently difficult. But kind of coming back around to the difficulties of food, well, as a type 1 diabetic, if you have a disease of glucose mismanagement, it makes sense that if you wanted to try and have better management than is currently out there for most people that are most people are achieving with type 1 diabetes. That maybe, maybe having less input of things that will cause these fluctuations in the form of carbohydrates, which are the most potent elevator of glucose in the form of food, that maybe that might actually help. Maybe that might reduce the burden of this disease a little bit. Well, carbohydrates are not the only food that causes a blood sugar elevating effect. We you know that protein does the same. In fact, there's a good paper illustrating that, you know, if you consume protein, you have a, gl- a glycogen response, or sorry, a uh, a glucagon response that can then drive glycogenoliasis and you have a glucose elevating effect downstream of that. Um, So protein can also elevate blood sugar. And then as a consequence in most healthy individuals, a a more subtle insulin response. There was a paper in the 1970s that compared the glucose effect of carbohydrates versus um, protein and the exact response between the two. If you were to look at the area under the curve for insulin between protein and carbohydrates Hmm. um, is about, if you had, if insulin was one, or let's say insulin was 100%, and that's our value, then protein would be 40%. So there's a 60% difference there between the carbohydrate-induced insulin response because of the glucose, of course, compared to the protein-induced insulin response because of the, the glucagon response. So it's about 60% lower, or if you're looking at it uh, from the 40%, about 2.5 times higher. Um, so protein obviously causes a much less, glucose-elevating effect. But what's unique about protein in a type 1 diabetic scenario is if you eat protein by itself or with with fat, uh, most protein sources, many protein sources, I guess you can get any type of protein nowadays. There's all types of options. But if you eat protein, there is a type of insulin called regular insulin that many individuals who are able to bolus regular insulin, because regular insulin takes about anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour and a half depending on a person to be absorbed. It peaks around the two to two and a half hour mark. Uh, I hope I'm getting that correct, but I believe I am um and then it lasts for upwards of you know you know six, eight hours. Well, if you look at the kinetics of protein, you see a somewhat similar response. So a lot of people who inject a protein or protein and fat only meal actually are able to quite effectively match the kinetics of regular insulin to a protein or protein and or fat meal. This is what is at the heart. Of success of people who are actually able to get glycemic management with a low carbohydrate based diet, which we now have evidence in the literature for, you know when I first did this approach thirteen years ago, um, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes thirteen years ago, actually twelve years ago was when the first time I ever stumbled across a low carbohydrate diet, and i didn 't even do it for blood sugar regulation reasons. I just did it because I thought at the time it might help my uh, physique and/ or performance in the gym. For a number of reasons, there was a lot going. There was a lot that goes into that decision at that time. But I did it, and I changed my insulin uh, with the help of someone who had more experience uh, doing this approach than I did. And all of a sudden, three months later, I walk into my doctor's office, got blood work, and my hemoglobin A1c was 5.6. For the first time I ever, did this. This was 12 years ago. You know, I, there was there was no there was no how to for me at that time. I just had someone who. Um through the type one diabetic I was familiar with, who was a bodybuilder who had experimented with all this, and I told this person I wanted to do this type of diet, and they had extreme knowledge on the kinetics of insulin, various types of insulins and in foods, and they just kind of threw out pointers here or there on okay, try this, try this, and I grew an appreciation for the different kinetics of each type of insulin, and then you know. With a protein-based meal, I would take regular insulin. I wasn't taking rapid-acting insulin anymore unless I had some type of carbohydrates with it. But at this time, I was doing this low-carb diet for the first time 12 years ago. And like I said, I walked into my doctor's office, um, and my doctor was like, that's that's incredible. You have a 5.6%. I've never seen that number in my office before. And, of course, that was a, a saliently, you know, I see I constantly use that word. I kind of like it. But it's it was so empowering to me at that time to have – the ability to have a doctor of that stature. who was a very prominent doctor um, at one point was the ADA president. One of the most incredible human beings I've ever met in my life. He used to call me every morning, three months in a row to check on me. I mean, just amazing, Wow. amazing. Cool. Oh, he's an amazing human being and still is to this day. There's no doubt about it. Um, and he, w- hearing that reinforcement was so incredible. And I was like, wow, there's, there's something to this. I didn't even consider the blood sugar regulating effects. Um, but wow, this is powerful, and I almost never found myself going low. I almost never found myself above 120. I, you know, I was almost never below 80, and almost never above 120. And I'm like, well, this is this isn't normal. Like this is what was happening
0: before. And is it, is this with uh, low carb, or was it a ketogenic diet, or what kind of macros were we you having?
1: Yeah, the first time I ever did this, I would argue, was almost like a Atkins approach, um, where I just I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I I just basically had as much protein as I wanted and as much fat as I wanted at every single way I was probably consuming anywhere from 200 to 250 grams of protein and 200 grams of fat in a, in a day. Um, and I was just, basically I was just having very low carbohydrate, really high protein really high fat and bolsing that with just regular insulin throughout the day with a basal insulin. Uh, at that time I was using Atlantis and it was amazing. Like, and I, at that time I didn't have a CGM, you know, I would just never see my numbers out of this normal range and you know, I was sold because I felt better too. You know, without having these fluctuations all the time, I was like, wow, this is this is pretty amazing. I didn't expect mm. this to happen as a product. I was just worried about how I how I was gonna do it in the gym. You know, at that point in my life, I was, you know, 17, 18, or 16, 17 going on, eighteen, the only thing I cared about is how I looked.
0: Right. So,
1: you know, you know, but then I saw this byproduct of this 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 eating strategy and this insulin strategy combined together and I was like, this is incredible. And over the years, over the last twelve years, I've tried a number of different nutritional strategies. Um, mostly trying to figure out how effective or ineffective it would be for not only in the gym and performance, but also for my blood sugar management. And over that 12 year period, I have yet to find an approach as effective as this one is for glycemic management. And there are some that are, are particularly unaffected for glycemic management. Um, but this one is one that is particularly effective. And, and now we have literature, you know, before there was a 2018 meta analysis that came out. I think it was it was Turton, I might be butch- butchering that, but they did a meta-analysis on type 1 diabetes and low-carbohydrate diets in 2018. I mean, we're talking mid-last year. We were, there was a discussion on this. And that meta-analysis, and for those who aren't familiar with the meta-analysis, it's a summary of studies. So basically, you take all the studies on the topic, you have a selection criteria, and you then evaluate the selection criteria, the studies in the selection criteria based on, you know, so you exclude certain studies, you include certain studies. But what they found in this study, I guess to, to summarize it, is that there was not enough evidence that a very low carbohydrate diet had any meaningful effect on glycemic control at all. And this was mid last year. But if you were to look at that study and micro dissect out the study, and this is, again, all on, I do this, I think this is on part three of the, uh, on my website describing this, These, if you break down individual studies there, as a type 1 diabetic, you grow to appreciate that a certain amount of carbohydrate, keeping a, a, your carbohydrates as low as you can, uh, typically the lower the better. Most people are around somewhere less than 50 grams per day. And that's in the form of fibrous carbohydrates, not in the form of, hey, I got my 50 grams of carbohydrates and, uh, and Twix bars. You know, it, 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 it's because of this slow, it's the fiber that you want from that. Um, and also it has a much less glycemic response, almost uh, nil or null glycemic response so you want that you don't want just your 50 grams
0: of carbs from rapid acting carbohydrates that's not a benefit to this scenario but yeah i can tell you like when i've had a, a meal that's you know all protein and fat and almost no carbs my blood sugar doesn't move at all you know be it like let's say 85 and we'll just stay that way which is really cool and i don't I eat can... so well it moves yeah
1: that's well congratulations to you i mean you you that's something that seems that at least, at least, it was like a kid scenario, and I guess there's also evidence in the type two diabetes scenario that that can be a chronic management strategy for people. Um, at least there's growing evidence for the long term use of that. At least from groups like Virta Health, who are publishing on that. There's um, people who've done this before previously as well, besides Virta Health. But now there's so in that study, I guess to, talk, to finish up on that study in that 2018 meta analysis, they basically found that there was no consensus on the effectiveness or lack thereof of these diets, um, but what? But yeah. I'm type one diabetes and type one diabetes. Um, okay. yeah, yeah. Not in type two type one. Um, cause there's been a whole host of, uh, 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 much less, um, literature on type one diabetes in this diet than there is in type two. There's been type two diabetes literature, I guess for almost probably upwards of 30 years now, uh, or more, you know, people, well, well I guess there's liter- literature all the way back to like the banting approach and all other stuff. But, um, for type one, there really hasn't been any literature, um, on this topic, uh, they're about, and I guess that meta-analysis, they look at eight studies they were able to include into their inclusion criteria. So that's nothing. I mean, in a meta-analysis, you're hoping to get like a, a ton of studies. They got eight. And those eight studies had low carbohydrate defined in a whole host of different ways, which means carbohydrates as 40% or less of your kcals, uh, 25 to, I guess, less than 25% by kcals and then less than 50 grams per day. And those are really different criteria of what they call low carb. Because in the literature community, low carbohydrate is defined in a whole host of ways. One way, the, dietetic, the, the typical dietetics low carbohydrate definition is less than forty-five percent by kcal carbohydrates, because that's low for most people. You know, mm-hmm. it's lower than most people consume, so they call that low. Whereas most people, I guess, in the ketogenic diet community, they don't really consider it very low or low unless it's less than fifty grams, because that's most of the literature that most people are studying in this field, where there's been health promoting effects are seen. It's less than a 50 gram scenario, not less than 45% by kcal. So, and I can tell you as a a type one diabetic, if I start having more carbohydrates than I need, you know, we're talking more than 50 grams per day. And I just said a general number, everyone will be different. Um, If I have more than that, then of course my blood sugar is going to be harder to control because then I'm, I'm starting to have to manage this. I'm basically having to chronically fight a roller coaster. So the less chance I have of going on the roller coaster at all, the better at management. So I know that personally, that when you get above that, those grams of carbohydrates, things get difficult. So I looked at that meta-analysis and I only looked at the studies that actually defined low carbohydrates, less than 50 grams. And when you do that, you only find 12 subjects across three different studies. And in those studies and that those individuals, two of them were just a single diabetic in two different studies. And one of them. Uh, and in fact, I, don't, I think one of those studies wasn't even in the meta-analysis, but there there is um, Essentially 12 subjects and I show this on the a little uh, table showing that if you had less than 50 grams These people were able to actually effectively get normalized hemoglobin A1c mm-hmm. uh, 5.5 or less um, And that is so important because if you know, it's only 12 subjects but You could almost view that as a, as 12 anecdotes if you look at it from a research perspective, you know, most right. trials have at least that number in an individual study you know and this is across three studies where you only have 12. So at best this is this is scraping the bottom of the barrel of evidence for trying to understand whether this is or isn't effective for people using it. But then there was this paper came out in pediatrics out of a group called type 1 GRIT. You know anyone with anyone who's doing low carbon and has type 1 IBs probably is familiar with this group. There's a group of low carbohydrate dieters um, it's an interesting story because I had been doing this diet for 12 years on and off to manage my disease. and I only went off of it to try new things to see how effective it was, um, hmm. but always, always using this diet as a foundation to, to knowing this diet works, like this diet works for me. Um, I will deviate off of it only to try other things to see how effective or ineffective they were. I um, always ended up back on this approach because nothing quite was as effective. Um, but I had been doing this for 12 years and essentially i never met another type one diabetic that ever had known of this approach up to that time. And then, you know, I work with, you know, in this lab here, USF metabolic therapeutics lab, the company, Angela Puff, a number of incredible people here. And, you know, they're out speaking about some of the work on cancer or wound healing or some other things. And they went to a conference and I think it was low carb, yeah, I forget where it was. It was either it was in Denver somewhere, or I forget where it was. And they saw someone named Artie Dykman speaking. Well, Artie Dykeman is the leader of Type One grid. He has a son who uh, has Type One diabetes, and he got onto this approach called the Bernstein approach. Which actually, I went through and read that entire book. It's called uh,
0: Doctor Bernstein's Diabetic Solutions. Yeah, I just I got that. it. I'm making my way through it. It's good.
1: Amazing. Yes, awesome. It, I, I read through that as well, and I was kind of shocked because I had learned. So much on my own just figuring this out by myself and I found this book that damn near described the entire way of doing it and just a, a basically a, a how-to book and I had been doing it on my own without any real guidance and so I was like wow this is incredible and he was describing this and then I got a text message actually from two people who were at that conference said hey do you, do you know about this group and I was like no uh, I haven't and cause I, essentially I had never met another type of diabetic my entire life up to that point. Who had done a low carbohydrate diet. And I they're like, You should check it out. So I I check it out and end up getting invited. It's a private group. You're only allowed in the group if you are a type one diabetic or they have a public group for anyone to see. Um there's a private group for only type one diabetics or caregivers. Um and I got invited into the private group because I'm you know type one diabetic using this strategy, and I was blown away. There were litter little kids in this group, man, like five, six, seven years old. With completely flatline blood sugar levels that were unbelievable. Wow. A1C. And then on top of that, not only flat blood sugar levels, which is completely uncommon in, in the pediatric population. The pediatric population, the average hemoglobin A1C is higher than the average for most people. So they're sitting even higher than the, the normal yeah. um, for type 1 diabetics, that is. And these kids were killing it. I mean, it's knocking it out of the park. And it really inspired me. Like it really, really inspired me. And it, it encouraged me a lot, and, and there was this opportunity at University of South Florida to actually do a TEDx talk, and I said, you know what, I have done this for so long on my own, it was really hard as a scientist to get up and talk about a diet um, and say this is an effective management strategy because it was an anecdote, and as a scientist, you grow to appreciate that your anecdote, even if it's your own, may not work for other people. There are enough examples of that in science. You see it, I see it in my own experiments. Um, it's it's something that I, I grew to appreciate as a scientist. So I was never really willing to speak out on this topic because I felt like I could be a one-offer. And I joined this group, and I see kids and parents alike, or kids and adults alike, just nailing it out of the park in glycemic control, achieving glycemic control that less than two percent of all type one diabetics achieve, achieving blood glucose stability less than four percent of all type one diabetics achieve. I mean, it was literally unbelievable, and I. It just kind of blew me away. And I was like, there's opportunity, came up to do a TED Talk and apply for it. And I applied for a USF, ended up doing it. And around that same time, Harvard and Duke uh, came out with a study looking at, a survey study looking at the medical outcomes of the type 1 Greek group. So because the word got out that the type 1 grit group was doing so well, achieving results that basically no type 1 diabetics were achieving. You know, Duke and Harvard got very interested to explore this group and wanted to evaluate them. So they did. Mm. Um, they undertook a, a with the help of Arty Dykeman, um, people like Kerry Douglas, David Ludwig, um, Eric Westman, a whole host of individuals. Uh, I'm not even naming. You know, Bernstein was a part of the study. there's a whole host of individuals who are part of this um, this study who really helped with this go. And I'm certainly not naming everyone who did all this, but they essentially surveyed the group. Not, and I don't mean like, hey, this this group went online and filled out a survey. They had doctor-confirmed data from these patients illustrating that these individuals, in fact, were achieving, on average, a 5.67% hemoglobin A1C. And inclusion criteria was only three months on the diet. And yes, and that's, to put this in perspective, and this is what made me so much more empowered to even have a conversation with you here today. As a researcher, I'm always hesitant to do that, especially when it's something that just worked for me. Okay. But I know it's working for other people. And as a type 1 diabetic, you know the, the current strategies out there. No, there is no effective management strategy right now. In 2000, there was a New England Journal of Medicine paper that came out that literally revolutionized the field because they did beta cell transplants back into patients, and they were able to normalize glycemic control within three months. Well, it was only in seven patients. It was, it was less than ten, but I believe it was seven, and they were able to get the average hemoglobin A1c into the normal range, less than five. 6, or less than 5.7 sorry in that patient population and it literally changed the entire field of type 1 diabetes research and hope that there might be a cure around the corner hmm. that didn't happen unfortunately because a year later it was published that those beta cells that were injected in those patients were slowly dying off meaning that the, the beta cells they injected were slowly having an autoimmune response and we they knew this was going to happen eventually hmm. Hmm. because anytime you had beta cell transplants you're on immunosuppressants uh, the reason you're on immunosuppressants is because it's expected that the immune system will attack those implanted cells, these donor, these donor beta cells or insulin cells. So, but just in seven patients in the New England Journal of Medicine, and back in 2000, one of the most highly, probably the most cited paper in all of type one diabetes research, completely revolutionized the field. And here we have a paper in 2008, and there was nothing since then. And then, of course, the, those beta cells died off, and now we they were stuck in a. Situation of trying to mitigate them dying, and it just nothing has worked for mm-hmm. effectively managing type 1 diabetes. And then this paper comes out in 2000 in Pediatrics. Uh, the senior author was um, David Ludwig on this, and um, Leonards uh, from Boston Children's uh, affili- uh, Harvard Affiliate Hospital was the first author on this. Uh, put together uh, analysis of this type 1 diabetes group, type 1 GRIT. And this study showed in 300 patients, 42 or 46 of them, which were children, were able to have completely normal blood sugar on average. I mean, this is, it, it was incredible. I mean, I, t- t- I cannot describe how important and impressive that is. It's actually the most cited or the most read paper in all of pediatrics for last year um, because of what it means to this potential disease state um, and it also shows, and there's a whole host of utilities now that people are exploring low-carbohydrate diets for, diseases, health, performance reasons, whatever they may be. But I'm particularly interested in type 1 IBs, obviously, for my own personal reasons. And this paper was is a total game-changer for that and illustrated that it's possible. You know, I'm not saying that every type 1 diabetic can go change over to low-carb. That's that's the end-all, be-all. There's obviously a lot more that goes into it than just changing over to low-carb. It's changing over the foods that cause the blood sugar spikes that are very difficult to manage with any current insulin strategy and just using the foods that are manageable with current insulin strategies available right now and then simultaneously managing with appropriate insulin strategy as mentioned but also fitting your lifestyle around managing it and that's what these people did i mean they're a very motivated group of people um i know because i'm a part of that group and i can definitely attest to the motivation of these individuals they are diehards about trying to get it right. And, and most of these people are largely motivated by trying to reduce the complications and risk that are so salient in this disease. You know, you asked me before, you know, what are the complications yeah. of this? And we got a little derailed. But the acute complications of the hyper and hyperglycemia that happen every day for most type 1 diabetics, especially hyper, because um, most avoid hypos altogether if they can, but often aren't able to completely. But they're usually chronic problem. The chronic problems are what is motivating to a lot of people in this group because I outlined this in the the write-up in part two of the write-up online, but you often don't hear about all these complications. I was actually kind of quite upset when I started reading about this when I was actually in this PhD program more aware of the literature on this topic in type 1 diabetes. I was actually kind of angered because I was never told about half of these things, and maybe that was for the better because there was no strategy to really get over it or to overcome them. Mm. Okay. Um, but you're essentially set up for increased risk on average. If you get average results for type one diabetes for all 10 of the leading causes of death, all 10 of them. So diabetes is one of the leading causes of death. You have increased risk for all the other ones as well. It is a really difficult disease. Now you're in increased risk for all these other diseases, but there's also side things that aren't mentioned. You know, children with glycemic management have changes in brain function. Um, changes in cognition that occur at young ages like that. If you're another example of some of the tragedy that happens with this is over 80% of type one diabetics within two decades of diagnosis will have retinopathy. And oh, yeah. I, it's, it's pretty terrible. Um, but there's been about three papers that have looked at what the real consequence of all this is, and that's mortality. And on average, a type one diabetic is expected to live over a decade shorter than their non-diabetic peers. Meaning that you're, I'm, I right now, I'm Andrew Kudnick. I am 29 years old and I am expected as a type one diabetic to not live into my seventies, but at my best live into my sixties with type one diabetes. Hmm. And keep in mind, that's the average. We're also talking about people who will live much shorter because maybe they have glycemic mismanagement that drives them into adverse control. Right. And ultimately, that's the average reduction in, more, in survival in, in patients with this disease. And it wasn't one study to show this. There was another study that came out last year in Lancet showing that if the earlier you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, the more increased your risk is. Females have it even worse. Um, their, their reduced survival is, is slightly higher than males. And there was even uh, numbers on the order of if you're diagnosed early in age and have glycemic, uh, in, uh, if you're a type 1 diabetic and you're a part of the cohort that was diagnosed at its earliest, man, your increased risk for things like cardiovascular disease are exponentially
0: higher, it unbelievably a, higher. It's shortened lifespan and dramatically shortened health span too. Correct, and both those combined really lead to
1: you know. And then you then you ask the question, well, then what what underlies all these problems? Well, at its core, glycemic mismanagement is driving most of these problems, and. If anyone sees it differently, I would love to, you know, know. I would love for them to reach out to me and and discuss this with me because I'm very open-minded. I myself am a type one diabetic as well. I also want to find the best strategy. I am no fan of any one diet at all. I'm a fan of what works, and what appears to be the most effective strategy for reducing the risk and complications, not only acutely but chronically, in type one diabetics, all gets back to based on what we currently know about type one diabetes, is glycemic control. So. Type 1 diabetics can achieve better glycemic control. In theory, they would be reducing the risk, not, not in theory, acutely. Acutely, you're definitely reducing the acute complications. But chronically, in theory, you're reducing all the risk factors. In fact, the top two risk factors for type 1 diabetics, um, based on a 2016 ADA publication, the first one is hemoglobin A1C and the second one is triglycerides. Well, if you do this diet effectively and you're one of the people in the type 1 group group who are able to manage it exceptionally well, you're reducing the primary risk factor for cardiovascular disease, one of the biggest problems in this disease state, one of the things that can induce death early for many type 1 diabetics. And then secondary is triglycerides. Well, one of the most common metabolic consequences of a low-carbohydrate diet is reduced triglycerides. So you're reducing the assumption that this diet is helping type 1 diabetics is largely based on everything we know about the physiology of the disease, how it manifests, and how it progresses to cause adverse outcomes. And that's around glycemic mismanagement. And a diet like this has been shown to effectively manage, of course, match with the right insulin, match with the right lifestyle. And a large cohort of patients showed that it was possible. I'm also living evidence of that as well, that it is possible. But I'm an N of 1, and as a scientist, as I said, I don't necessarily all, I don't buy all in on N of 1s but there's an entire group of individuals I see every day thriving off this approach. And it's hard not to at least put it out there that this just, is something that
0: go ahead. Yeah. Just like, just like you're resistant to of one experiments. Um, it seems like the medical community in general is resistant to non-drug interventions, period. To some
1: degree, you know, I mean, to some degree. And I, I've, I think most people, and I, this is something where I kind of, because I I've, I've had some pretty incredible doctors and I you know a lot of people harp on the ADA and give them a really hard time but I my my doctor was the ADA president man he's one of the best doctors he's actually the best doctor I've ever had you know so there is there's is certainly some of that that is occurring for sure I don't want to downplay that at all but I also want to illustrate that no one gets into this to try and hurt patients you know they get into it because they're trying to help patients there I don't think any doctor went to medical school saying I can't wait to screw over this you know patient X or Y they went into it, I'm sure, because they at least in part wanted to help someone have better health. So it's just unfortunately the tools currently given aren't are doing that, and there are a number of concerns in the medical community, especially especially from providers, about the adverse outcomes of a disease like that, and that, that's part and why why I actually went to quite extensive detail to try and outline what those arguments are, you know, some of the concerns are ketoacidosis, hyperglycemia, pediatric growth, cholesterol, long-term health. Uh, you know, doctors feel like there's compliant issues with the diets, um, that that may reduce quality of life. And then there's people who are concerned about protein and kidney health. And I argue that if you view at this disease in its entirety, the 30,000-foot view of what people are concerned about with this disease versus what it actually provides, I argue that it's overwhelmingly in favor of the hopes of what this diet may provide. Mm-hmm. Now, when you if you dive into this, like let's I'll, I don't even know if you have time for this, but I can I can address every single one of those concerns currently out there in the medical community that are currently arising. So, some of the common concerns right now in the medical community that I've heard of, or heard from patients who have heard from doctors who are concerned about doing this approach. Well, the first thing that pops up is ketoacidosis. If you're doing a diet like a low carbohydrate diet, would that not elevate ketones higher and then put people at risk for ketoacidosis? Well, risk for ketoacidosis associated with actually increased hemoglobin A1C. So the higher the hemoglobin A1C, the higher the risk for actually getting into ketoacidosis. And this is of course associated with glycemic mismanagement. But if you're able to actually effectively manage your glycemic control, but also your hemoglobin A1C, you're vastly reducing the incidence and risk based on the risk factors for ketoacidosis. Additionally, it's a very common healthy response for and anyone in the endocrinologist community will appreciate this. Fasting and or carbohydrate restriction, a normal healthy response to that is a slight elevation or you know modest elevation in ketone bodies, that's normal. Ketone bodies get a bad rap in um, type 1 diabetes specifically and got a bad rap in the health community as a whole from type 1 diabetes, where you see pathological levels of it. But that's typically over 10 millimolar when a type 1 diabetic goes into diabetic ketoacidosis it's nowhere near the same thing as a normal healthy ketone level of uh, quote unquote nutritional ketosis. And some people would put that around you know, 0.5 or
0: three millimolar, It would depend on the person, right? Yeah, are say, people, are, people are happy to be one, one millimolar, forget about 10.
1: Right, right. So,
0: and that's the, that's the normal
1: range. And we also have an emergence of evidence as to the health promoting effects of these molecules that have arisen. So um, in many ways we have the, as a, as a, Community, at least in this community I'm familiar with, have reevaluated ketoacidosis or ketones as a bad thing. But in the type 1 diabetes scenario, ketoacidosis in theory would be reduced because you're actually having better glycemic control and your risk of having ketoacidosis events, which I would argue, nutritional ketosis is normal homeostatic glucose, moderate to low ketones, and low to moderate insulin, a sufficient amount of insulin to manage ketone levels. Um, Whereas ketoacidosis is over 250 milligrams per deciliter glucose, over 10 millimolar ketones, and extremely low, insufficient insulin. It's a completely different physiological scenario. So that's the first one. Okay. The second one is hyperglycemic risk. So there's the idea that if you have A1Cs that are lower, that you're at increased risk for running hyperglycemic. Now, there's good reason for that, because there was a huge study conducted by called the DCs. DCCT and EDIC trial, which actually looked at patients doing intensive insulin management. They called it intensive then. It's quite normal now, where patients used to only inject about two times per day in insulin, type 1 diabetics, which is nowhere near going to effectively manage glycemic control. And then they also said, well, we need to also, we want to compare that to three or more injections a day and see if we could reduce um, the complications of this disease. And what they found is, yes, in fact, they were able to reduce the complications of this disease. But the problem is that more people got hypoglycemia as a consequence, and that makes sense because you're injecting insulin, you're more intensively managing it, you're more likely to run low if you're chronically trying to chase normal blood sugar levels when it's almost impossible to do that based on the kinetics of the food most people eat and the insulin kinetics.
0: Yeah, if you're fluctuating, right, tremendously. And your your A1C is lower, that means it's still fluctuating a lot, but just around a lower set point.
1: Right. So, uh, correct. There you go. You, You nailed it. So, and again, this is another marker that runs simultaneously in risk with hemoglobin A1C. So, the higher the hemoglobin A1C, the higher the risk for hyperglycemia. And of course, this gets back to your point about blood sugar standard deviation, which both of those things, hemoglobin A1c, and glucose, blood glucose intervention, are things that we know decrease on an approach like this, if done effectively. So both of these primary risk factors for hyperglycemia are also reduced. And if you look in the, uh, the type 1 diet, type one group community, one of the things they're actually doing a low-carbohydrate diet for, in fact, Bernstein actually claims the reason, part of the reason he claims to have done the low-carbohydrate diet is to reduce the incidence of hyperglycemia that he was observing. And I can attest to the fact that you dramatically reduce the incidence in myself of hyperglycemia, but also the severity of them because they're not a, you're not diving off you know the edge of a cliff in blood sugar levels. You have if you're going low, it's because it's subtle a low, lowering of blood sugar. So that's that the kind of the second one. First one, ketoacidosis. Second one, hyperglycemic risk. The third one is just quite um, apparent, especially in, in, in doctors who treat children, is pediatric growth. There's studies in seizure patients showing, uh, out of John Hopkins, actually, um, Newman, and uh, I've actually talked to Eric Kosov out of John Hopkins, about some of these studies, and, and because of the context of type 1 diabetes and, and people's concerns, there's there's been evidence in the seizure community that if you do a strict ketogenic diet, you can impair pediatric growth. And it must it's important to mention that a lot of the diet that someone, that most people, especially the type 1 grit community, are doing is a diet that's not low in protein. In fact, it's, it's it, it, at the very least sufficient amounts of protein. It's very different from the four to one ketogenic diet. And one thing that is often not discussed is that pediatric growth we know is a so, a pediatric growth impairment is associated with glycemic mismanagement. Hmm. So and yes, right. So in, in theory, if you improve glycemic control, you reduce the risk associated with pediatric growth impairment. And if you have a diet sufficient in protein, In theory, you may not have the same consequences of impaired growth that some of these diets did in seizure patients. Well, if you look at the pediatric population, I talked to Dr. Uh, Linners about this, you know, not all the pediatric patients had reported um, growth, but the ones that she had indicated they did not have impaired growth. And if you look at some of the other studies in the literature that show that there are risks for impaired growth, you almost always see a poorly implemented ketogenic diet or low-carbohydrate diet with a a co administered scenario of caloric restriction. And we know caloric mm-hmm. restriction okay. impairs growth. Right. So yeah. combined, we just don't have evidence for that in the type 1 ID community. In fact, in the type 1 grit paper, we actually see that the growth impairment isn't present in the children doing um, the diet for those who reported growth. So that's the third thing. So you have ketoacidosis is one, hyperglycemia is two, pediatric growth is three. The third one is cholesterol and long-term health. And I kind of addressed this earlier in that the risk of – the idea is that if you have a high-fat diet, of course, you're going to run the risk of having elevated cholesterol and LDL cholesterol is associated with – some people believe it's causal, although the evidence isn't there that it's causal, but there's people who believe that there's enough evidence to indicate that LDL cholesterol is causal um, in cardiovascular disease. So if you eat a diet that's super high in fat, you're running the risk of, you know, having patients who are already at risk for cardiovascular disease exacerbating that. What again, getting back to that 2016 paper for what actually is the highest risk factors in type 1 diabetics for cholesterol um, in cardiovascular disease, hemoglobin A1C and, and triglycerides are number one and two. And these are both things that we know reduce on this diet rather remarkably. On top of that, we also know there's evidence that this diet, if done effectively, elevates HDL cholesterol. And we also know that at least for macrovascular diseases, elevated insulin seems to be associated with macrovascular diseases. So reducing insulin load is something we know is a hallmark consequence of going on low carbohydrate diet, type one diabetics. In fact, my insulin requirements now compared to being you know, a standard diet are about 70% lower. And I will also go to say that that's not entirely uncommon from other patients to describe. In fact, there's literature outside of type one diabetics showing 50 and 66% reductions in insulin load in different scenarios. So all these factors combined, the primary risk factors associated with these worry of cholesterol driving long-term health adverse out- health outcomes in the context of cardiovascular disease isn't keeping in perspective that the primary risk factors are actually improved dramatically with this approach. And that has to be kept in mind. It's not that it, it isn't a concern. It's just you need to keep in mind what is the primary problems. And this is something that addresses the primary issues. Now, the last two things are... The first of the last two things is compliance and quality of life. We know that doing any diet, and I guess the concern is, okay, if you do a low-carbohydrate diet, it's restrictive. You know, you walk in the grocery store, you're walking away from the center of the grocery store basically entirely, because that's mostly carbohydrates. Right. And so patients aren't going to comply to that. There's no way they're going to do that long-term. Well, I'm, you know, there's evidence that that's true. Yeah, you know, that is true. Patients have reduced compliance on a low-carbohydrate diet. But the reduced compliance is no different in a low-carbohydrate diet as it is from an Ornish diet or any of these other style of diets that people are implementing. It's the same. The reduced-compliance is the same no matter what diet you're trying to to complete. The compliance issue is not unique to this diet. It's the same for all diets. Um, Now, there's an issue with, okay, well, I don't have as many food options. But we know that because of the expanding interest in this low-carbohydrate sphere, that there's a whole host of readily available package-based foods that people can buy and currently eat. And I, I do find this diet at something that I actually currently do enjoy because it's most of the foods I do enjoy are part of this diet, uh, especially on the the meat and eggs and, and fish realm. Um, but the last it's thing pretty is... pretty
0: delicious diet, actually. You can eat a lot of great I, stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I would argue, you know, I'm super biased on that, so keep that in mind. But I, I agree. I do enjoy it. Um, I find a lot of people also do enjoy it as well. I'm sure some people won't, but, you know, they're... There's always some who will, and won't. Um, the last thing, though, that I think is important to always consider is we know glycemic mismanagement can impair quality of life. We know that living a life where you're constantly running roller coaster is going to impede your ability to live the most fulfilling life. Um, and I can tell you that is absolutely true in my life. Um, but if you're able to have a scenario where you actually are able to acutely control your glycemic control, and that translates into feeling empowered over a disease that you felt completely crippled by. That, I would argue, might improve compliance long-term because you don't have a choice in type 1 diabetes. If you have it, you have it. You have to deal with it. If you can find something that helps you manage that, that's something that I would argue would never hurt your glycemic, or it would never, would likely not hurt your compliance, if anything
0: would drive compliance. Well, yeah, that's, you, that's what I was gonna say is, you know, <clears throat> Most many drugs have side effects, which would make it hard to comply with taking them, especially if they're really intense. But if you have yeah. something like a ketogenic diet that makes you feel better and is not so hard to be on, you, you right, it would drive compliance. I would be like, I feel better doing this. I want to keep doing it.
1: Yeah, and no, I'm not here to tell you that it's it's like the easiest thing ever. Like you are walking away from certain foods. It does take an educational process from the patient and the physician on how to do this. It's not, there's there's no give me and there's no freebies in this, right? It takes real effort. Um, but damn there anything in life worth having it does take real effort. And if you're dealing with a disease where you, the, the acute complications in a day of fluctuating around running hyperglycemic for most of your life and having those salient, really powerful hyperglycemic moments is something that we know impairs quality of life. So if you can dramatically reduce all of that, I think that it's something that might translate over to compliance. And we know that in the pediatric paper, of course, it's very biased because these these people are highly motivated to be on the diet. Almost, I think it was 87% of the people enjoyed the diet. So I, that might have a lot to do with the fact that they were getting good control and as a result, enjoy the diet. I actually personally choose to do the diet because it improves my quality of life dramatically for that exact reason. Hmm. Um, I, I have a If I eat a carbohydrate meal right now, I'm like, oh, man, there's – Someone had a birthday party and they had this or that. And, of course, there are you can make alternatives. You can go to Caroline's Keto Kitchen, and there's all sorts of alternatives you can make that have similar flavor. Some don't all, but for the most part, you can make pizza. You can make donuts. You can make bread. You can make all these things as well if you wanted to eat them in low-carbohydrate and be able to manage it with this eating strategy. But if you were to, let's say I were to walk next door and they had a birthday party for someone and they had cake, Well, I'm choosing not to eat that cake because I know what's going to happen for the rest of the day. It ain't going to be worth it. It's, it's. I will be running hyperglycemic and the consequences of that hyperglycemic and glycemic mismanagement will continue and persist for the entirety of that day if I'm not able to correct it almost instantly. So that that's something that has to always be kept in mind when someone says, well, you, you won't be able to stick with that long term. But they may not realize what a type 1 diabetic patient is actually dealing with when they don't have a strategy that effectively manages their glycemic control. The last thing, that's the thats the second to the last thing. The very last thing is the, the concern of protein and kidney health. And there's concern that, you know, protein will cause kidney damage in patients who are already at increased risk for ret, like a uh, uh, renal failure or not renal failure, like a uh, retinopathy. Um, and that's no, not retinopathy, but kidney damage. Okay. So kidney damage is not uncommon to progress uh, because of these small, very, I guess, um, Susceptible uh, vasculature in the kidney that filter out um, nutrients and minerals and other things like that is highly susceptible to damage due to hyperglycemia, and we know that. Yeah. Um, and people are worried. Okay, well, if you have patients who are at risk for damage, pre you know having you know elevated blood sugar damage in the kidneys, having a high protein diet wouldn't exacerbate it? Well, that whole ideology came out of a hypothesis paper back in the 1970s or 80s, describing the hypothesis that. And patients who have renal failure, that if you have elevated protein, you have to, you have breakdown of uh, protein into urea. And urea, of course, being secreted um, from the kidneys, or at least an eventual breakdown of protein will end up in the urine. And wouldn't that stress the kidneys out more? And that kind of perpetuated as low-protein diets are able to help extend life at least a little bit in patients, in some studies, not all. Uh, in patients with kidney failure. But there was a recent meta-analysis conducted by Stu Phillips and others showing that that elevated protein diet is not associated with kidney dysfunction um, and that they argue that a lot of the hypothesis surrounding high-protein diets causing kidney dysfunction is largely driven based on just values where people just look across populations and not necessarily change values pre- and post-high-protein diets. And in their study, they were not able to find any association with elevated protein and changes in kidney function over time. And, you know, protein is also an important part of a healthy diet. We know that getting all the amino acids is important and may, it may arguably could be optimal for things like growth um, and having a, a healthy diet. We know that protein is important for maintaining skeletal muscle mass. So there's no doubt about that. Um, when I talk about ketone bodies and, and their potential anti-catabolic effects and and prosynthetic effects in certain contexts. you know, Protein, we know, has many of those same effects, um, if not more powerfully so in some scenarios, depending on the context, we, you it know, just depends. And they haven't been directly compared, so that'll be an interesting thing to study in the future. But we know protein is very important for maintaining normal healthy, uh, normal, healthy skeletal muscle. And we know that that's really important for overall health. So when we keep all this in perspective, and those who are concerned about this diet, I understand those concerns. They do make sense. It makes sense to be concerned about a diet. And it's kind of seems new, not necessarily recommended by a lot of people in the uh, medical community. Right. And there's concerns of ketoacidosis, hyperglycemia, pediatric growth, cholesterol, and long-term health, compliance and quality of life, and protein and kidney health. But if you look at the overall picture of a type one diabetics scenario and what would potentially help all of those, I would argue that there's so much hope to be gleaned from a very low carbohydrate diet if you have type one diabetes. And I'm not here to tell anyone what to do. Of course, I'm just here to espouse a possibility that might be available for someone trying to get a better overall quality of health and maybe a result in longer health.
0: So yeah, I think you're to advocate for. No, that's that's great. There's been <laughs> you have a ton of knowledge. I think anyone listening to this podcast that has gotten to this point is definitely open to uh, you know, dietary intervention versus the, uh, the, you know, what their situation is right now. So I don't think you have to worry too much about that, but I appreciate you relating your experience and all your knowledge. This has been, uh, like a tour de force.
1: (laughs) I, I, I uh, truly appreciate the opportunity to come on and speak about uh, a number of topics that I am honestly very, very passionate about. I would definitely, I always tell people when they ask me, you know, oh, what, you know, what should I do about, you know, what do you think about this career path or this career path? All I tell people is do do what you love. I'm, I'm an example of someone who got the opportunity to do exactly that. And let me tell you, I would pay all the money I currently have in every savings account, investment, everything to be able to do what I'm doing right now. And um, I just I'm very honored to have the opportunity to even speak about it. So I appreciate you for that as well. That's great. Well, Andrew,
0: thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Richard. I appreciate it.